Welcome everybody to another episode of the Receptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where he's in the art and science of games. As always, I am Josh Beiser, and we have another great cast lined up today. We are returning to the topic of modern retro games and game design, and my guest tonight is the co-founder of the studio 6502 Workshop, who just finished a Kickstarter for very much a game that could be described as modern retro. It is Nox Arceus, and this is a old-school RPG designed explicitly for or designed around the Apple II and will also be available on Mac and PC. So please welcome to the podcast tonight, Mark Lemmert. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate you having me on. It is great to have you on, Mark. How are you doing today? Excellent. I uh, couldn't be better. I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, nose deep in a bunch of uh, 6502 assembly language code, and that's where I like to be. <laughs> All right. I'm sure a few of my programmers, their ears just like perked up when you said that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. But it is great to have you on. I guess to uh, start with, definitely congratulations on the success of the Kickstarter. For people Thanks. listening to us, when was the Kickstarter for Nox Arceus? Uh, thank you. Uh, the Kickstarter was in May. Uh, of this year, it ran from uh, beginning of May to end of May, and uh, we uh, successfully funded it like roughly 500% of the goal. Mm -hmm. uh, it really, really was uh, a wonderful success, uh, thanks to uh, everybody out there in the retro community that supported us, and uh, much appreciate uh, their help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, congratulations on that. We certainly have a lot to discuss tonight, especially with talking not only about modern retro design, but the very fact that you are very much building it for that old school style Apple II. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that That's uh, the uh, uh, a really fun way to approach it from my perspective. And um, certainly look forward to, to talking with you more about that. Mm -hmm. So to begin with, since this is your first time on the cast, Mark, for the people listening, could you talk a little bit about your background in the industry, as well as what is Knox Arceus? Sure, absolutely. So um, I guess what, what I would start by saying is my love of RPGs started as a kid in the 1980s, like it did for many people. And uh, my family got an Apple II Plus around 1981, and I spent uh, basically my childhood playing games like Ultima and Bard's Tale and learning programming as I tried to uh, create similar games. And uh, it was going through, you know, those iterations that I acquired many of the skills uh, to be able to write a, uh, a tile graphics in for a game like uh, Nox or Chaos uh, in uh, uh, a 6502 assembly language today. Um, uh, however, despite being on a career track for game development, at least programming, things uh, uh, kind of took a different turn during the internet boom in the mid-1990s, and I ended up getting into network engineering and eventually finance and business management mm -hmm. uh, in the software industry. Uh, so, you know, this project, uh, which which started uh, about four years ago with Nox or Chaos, is, you know, it's really, I, I feel like I'm coming home, you know, back <laughs> to where it all started, so to speak. Uh, and I, I haven't had this much fun in, you know, as long as I can remember. It's, it's just been a blast. So um, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of where, where I come from at it. And from that standpoint, um, you know, I, being that uh, I, I haven't, you know, racked up like 20 years of experience in programming, uh, my, uh, my skills in that area, uh, you know, had to be 
definitely some development had to occur on them as I went, but I feel like, you know, it all balanced out. I also, you know, uh, you know, was able to bring to the table, uh, the finance and business management skills to be able to, uh, approach a project like this and see it through to the end, dealing with the sort of the non-technical challenges that often can, you know, derail, uh, uh, games that that go on to a Kickstarter and you know don't have good enough forecasting and and budgets to be able to you know know what they need to raise and uh, manage the vendors and kind of make it all happen. So um, uh, I think uh, it's gone really well actually in all respects, both technical and uh, the uh, kind of the project management side. Um, and oh, uh, you'd ask more about uh, to tell actually more about Nox or Chaos. Here, here I am talking about this abstract thing. Uh, <laughs> so. Like I said, Octarchaeus started about uh, four years ago, the project. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a sword and sorcery style uh, role-playing game, heavily influenced by the early uh, Ultima and Bard's Tale games, especially Ultima V, uh, the last Ultima title released on an 8-bit platform. Um, the uh, game will, will run on authentic physical Apple II hardware on real 5.25-inch uh, discs uh, or on a Mac uh, or Windows PC via an emulator, which will likely bundle in so that it's transparent to the end user. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically the goal of the project, uh, to put some context to it, is uh, to pick up where commercial development of 8-bit RPGs left off in the late 1980s when uh, most developers switched over to the PC. Um, so we basically want to are, are intending to, uh, and largely have given we're, we're in the late stages here, uh, we want to see what kind of game would have been possible if 8-bit development had just continued uh, past that 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 marker uh, in the late 80s, uh, so uh, to this end, uh, you know, while standing on the shoulders of giants, uh, <laughs> you know, we've been able to uh, achieve uh, gameplay with features that dial in somewhere between Ultima 5 and Ultima 6. Uh, in essence, we found that when the big switch happened away from uh, 8-bit onto uh, to the PCs, there there was more. Uh, capability within the 8-bit platforms, at least the Apple II, uh, that uh, could be squeezed out and would have been squeezed out, you know, had by by developers like Origin and others, mm-hmm. uh, if if uh, development had continued on those platforms. So it's been really, really fascinating experience uh, from that standpoint in exploring, you know, what else was possible. And like right there, that's ooh, excuse me, that's a very interesting. A discussion in of itself about kind of making use of older older hardware in this kind of style because when we talk about kind of the quote-unquote modern retro markets we think of today whether it's with studios like mega cat games yacht club um local Melito, and a slew of other developers there's always like that like there's always like two sides of this you either have developers who make a game using modern hardware and technology and it's built to emulate that old school style, or it may yep. take things even further. And then we have developers like yourself. I know, like Megacadding have done this, who literally will use that old hardware and that old assembly language to build their games out. And it's pretty much like it's you are literally building a game like they did back in the late eighties, early nineties. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I hear you. You know, I see both approaches out there, and uh, I, I I haven't tried it the other way as far as using modern technology to emulate the the uh, uh, the, the retro environment. Um, but uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm certainly familiar with what's kind of what's happening there. And it's interesting to see how it's uh, you know it all unfolds. I mean, ultimately, I think both approaches 
are fundamentally very interesting. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the um, doing it on the original hardware. Uh, there's a couple of reasons that I decided to do that. One is because uh, for me that was very central to you know this motivation that I had to basically like fin- finish what I started uh, as a kid. You know, and always wanting to make a game like this, and uh, and and uh, did not uh, achieve that. You know, as a kid, and so to now it's like, well, to really go back and pick up where I left off and do it, I've, I've got to go back to the hardware I was working on. <laughs> you know, to really feel that sense of like, okay, I, I finally did it all these years later. Um, so that's one factor. Another is that uh, I I think that there is something you know the sort of the secret sauce of what made those 8-bit games so fun uh i i think part of it is uh they were born out of the constraints of the platform and if if you live within those constraints you know the 128k yeah. of memory on on the apple you know 2e uh and and uh what is it? I think half megahertz processor of the 6502. You just have to do things differently and do them in a certain way that uh, you know just forces you to, uh, I think, ultimately develop much more uh, in, engaging game mechanics and and story because you know you're you're not going to you know capture the player's interest with uh, you know the other kinds of things that can be done in the more modern platforms even an RPG that's being developed uh, to be a retro RPG on a modern platform, um, I personally, I think it would be difficult to, for, to to sort of force oneself down to that 128K half megahertz sandbox, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it, when, when, when you don't have to, you know. Uh, mm. so, so as a result, I think that uh, uh, the, the e- sort of the easiest way, not that this is easy, but the easiest way to really get, recapture that, uh, that that eight bit you know uh, secret sauce, if you will, that made those games so fun, uh, is is to just actually do it, you know, mm-hmm. on the real hardware and enforce yourself within those constraints. And that's a very interesting aspect of game development as well. Something that we've talked about on many casts, whether it's live recorded, and about kind of like the importance of set constraints when you're trying to frame your thinking or build a game around it. Because as many independent developers know, especially in today's market, thanks to many free engines available, you can do whatever the heck you want. Like, there's very few limitations if you're trying to build something in Unity or Unreal other than just the time and energy needed to do that. But the downside, of course, is that if you're given freedom to do everything, it becomes very hard to focus on what you really want out of that title or that design. Yeah, absolutely. It's there's a there's a trade-off there for sure. And uh you know, the Nox Archaeus game engine took 3 years to build, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the last year has been creating content and uh you know, there there's uh definitely something to be said for starting with, uh, you know, a game engine and focus on, you know, actually building the game. Of course, that's not really an option on the Apple II because, you know, there is no you know, open source game engine that that you can just, uh, um, uh, you know, li- like a like a Unity that 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 you, you you can just use and then build your content on top of. Yeah. Um, people have asked me, they say, "Hey, are you going to make like a uh, construction set out of this engine?" <laughs> you know, yeah. I always say, "Well, you know, lots of future projects under consideration, but we'll get this one done first. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, so yeah, it it is. Uh, 
it, it is definitely, you know, going the route of, of, uh, of creating the engine definitely adds another layer challenge to it. And honestly, I had no idea it was going to take this long. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure. I'd like to say that if I knew how long it was going to take at the beginning, that I still would have done it and done it the way that I did it. But I, I don't really necessarily know that that's true. <laughs> uh, at this point, it's kind of like, well, you know, Four years in, you know, lights at the end of the tunnel. We're gonna gonna see it through here, but it, it's it's definitely been a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, and I think every developer has said the same thing. I didn't think it was going <laughs> to take that long. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the greatest things get done when you don't know any better. You know. <laughs> yeah. And regarding kind of like the technical or hardware side of things. For people listening, you know that I am definitely not a programmer by trade, but I do have a few questions to kind of set you up with that I'm sure you'll be able to run with in a few minutes sure. about kind of the hardware side of making this. Now, sure. uh, one question I want to ask you, Mark, in terms of like your own like game dev career, is uh, Nox Arcadius like, your first game or did you work on other projects or titles beforehand? I, I would consider it to be my 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 first. Uh, it'll be my first game that gets completed. Uh, mm -hmm. The the only other games that I worked on were as a kid in the eighties. Like I said, when I was going through that experience of playing uh, games and then trying to write them and basically learning how to program. Uh, and 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 I never finished anything back then because it would be like okay, I I get a ways into it. And then I would learn a better way to do it. And then I would start over because, of course, I wanted to do it the better way because I could make the cooler game. Uh, a combination of that and getting distracted by the next Ultima when it came out invariably would lead to, you know, uh, the last thing not getting finished and, you know, being easier to kind of start over rather than figure out what I was doing before. So I, I, I went through a lot of that. Uh, and and then really, Nox Archaeist is, is my foray back into this. And... Uh, it is definitely, as I understand it, quite unusual to take on something this of this magnitude as uh, being without having at least completed games under your belt. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that is, I guess, uh, just a function of my stubbornness and determination <laughs> uh, to make the game that I always wanted to make. And I don't know whether there will ever be an Ox or KS2, you know, so this is like if, if this is my only crack at this, I want to do what I originally I'm not going to mess around with, mm -hmm. you know, taking step one. Two, no, no, no. I'm just going to go in there and do it. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got the uh, I, I, I know from past experiences in my career with very complicated and large projects that I have the staying power to see it through. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and, you know, as, as mentioned, you know, this is four years in at this point. So hopefully that illustrates it. Uh, and, and additionally, I, I've learned a lot over my career about the value of building teams and, you know, knowing what you don't know and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, things like that that made me more comfortable with uh, with with diving in. Basically, uh, once once I was able to tell that I, I could really get a handle around 6502 assembly language and implement, uh, you know, sort of the conceptual designs that I had uh, had done in the past for. Uh, for tile game engines, I thought, okay, I, th I think I've got the technical chops to really, you know, you know, do this or do most of it. And uh, but I knew, oh, hey, there's a lot of other elements to games. There's like, well, what about the story? What about you know the statistical <laughs> systems and the balancing, the tweaking, and things like that? And um, what sort of happened there is uh, uh, a, a a team kind of evolved. <laughs> um, 
6502 Workshop is actually a group of like 12 people. And um, what I found, you know, is that uh, to, to do a project like this, you know, you need the skills, the motivation and the time. And uh, uh, something like this hasn't been done on the Apple II in over 30 years because apparently nobody had all three of those things. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, and uh, until I came around and was, you know, perhaps foolish enough to, to dive in and do it. Um, but what I did find is that there were a lot of people, once I had a proof of concept out there, there were a lot of people that had, uh, you know, some, some relevant skills and definitely had the motivation and, and had a little bit of time, you know, it's like, hey, they'd always dreamed of making a game like I did. Um, weren't, weren't in a position like I was to sort of be like a one man show with it, but could contribute a little time here and there. And, uh, as a result, that's made the game, uh, a lot better than it would have been if I had done it all myself, for example, in the area of art, I'm not an artist. You know, we got a great artist, Bill Geeky, who's doing, you know, all basically all the tile art and portrait images and things like that. Um, or, uh, music. Uh, music has been, uh, you know, not a strong suit of mine. And so we got some uh, community contributors there, like Eric Rangel and Tom Porter and uh, someone who goes by the name of Electric Moo uh, that have been doing music for the game uh, much better than I could have done. And and kind of back to the original topic of what gave me the confidence to tackle something this large is uh, I was able to get in touch and and basically recruit for, for the team. Uh, some uh, uh, professional game developers with a lot of experience that have uh, basically acted as project advisors, and so I've been able to have the the you know the access to people to brainstorm with things like the storyline and statistical systems, and 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 basically get a lot of good advice on how not to back myself into a corner and have to start over on massive you know portions of the game, um, things that would typically be learned from. Uh, you know, doing small game number one, small game number two, and getting more and more comfortable with the size and the scope. Uh, I, I sort of dealt with my lack of knowledge in that area by uh, getting a lot of good advice and, and and doing some drafts of like the story and the stat systems saying, hey, can you take a look at this? Where did I mess this up? And kind of go through some iterations before committing it into the code. So uh, uh, long answer to your question on, uh, I think you'd asked about, is this my first game? Um <laughs> And uh, so there you have it. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to like this kind of passion in game design, it's something we've talked about again when it comes to the independent scene that many people get into it like their first game is that one dream game, that one they've always wanted to sure. make. And, you know, by God, they're going to make it no matter how long <laughs> it takes. Yep, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And like when it comes to... Uh, Nox Arcades and just like old school like CRPG design I guess like for myself like people who listen know that for me I didn't really get into RPGs probably until the late 90s early thousands and that was more on the JRPG side of things so what attracted you or what were like some of the major things that really saw to you about CRPG design that you really wanted Nox Arcades to represent? Well, I, I think that uh, I, I've just always had a passion for the uh, the, the two dimensional tile uh, interface, you know, to, uh, to to CRPGs, and uh, there there it just wasn't even a question in my mind that that that's what it was going to be, um, and uh, I, I always loved that. Uh, I, I liked uh, uh, dungeon crawler games that had kind of more the three D view. As well, um, 
And one thing that I liked about them is just based on the way they managed their screen real estate, uh, they had room for portrait images of merchants or mobs or different you know things. And that was something that the, the 2D tile games, uh, in fact, I can't even, I either didn't have or didn't typically have, I can't think of one off the top of my head that had that. So that was also something kind of early on that, uh, you know, I thought about is, uh, you know, I like to kind of take the, the what I like the best out of two different CRPG styles and merge them together a little bit. So what what evolved with Nox or Chaos is um, it's a 2D tile game fundamentally, uh, but we leveraged in portrait images in various uh, circumstances for things like the merchants uh, and for things like you're at the end of the battle and the treasure drop comes. You get a nice, you know, like quarter screen sized uh image of a pile of high-res image high-res you know for the apple uh <laughs> image of, of a pile of treasure um and and that uh so i've i really enjoyed seeing how that kind of wove together uh, and, and that also kind of touches on uh and, and i think fits in well with the topic of crpg elements is something else that i i tried to do was uh you know think about what what had been done in the past in terms of 8-bit crpgs um and and think about well you know, what are some of the uh, sort of the game UI quality of life uh, features that evolved that maybe could have been done mm -hmm. in the 8-bit environment uh, if they had uh, been invented? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and we actually had a fair amount of success, I think, in, in doing that. Uh, for example, the typical 8-bit uh, 2D tile uh, RPG from the 1980s would have a small view window that you were seeing that 2d tile map that was maybe half the screen or a third of the screen and then and then the remainder of the screen real estate was taken up by uh, a list of characters like a character roster and mm -hmm. then a text window where you would see like if you're talking to an npc and things like that um so what we did was we said well this was an experiment you know this was one of those let's see how, if there, how much horsepower and resources could be squeezed out of the Apple II kind of experiment. Uh, we said, well, can a 2D tile engine run on an Apple II a full-screen uh, viewport in, into the map? And we didn't know. <laughs> Nobody had tried it. Yeah. <laughs> and it turned out the answer was, yes, you can do that. It is possible to do that. Mm. And uh, once we got into the, the full-screen uh you know, is possible mode in, in thinking about, you know, the what modern sensibilities we incorporate. It's like, okay, can we do pop-up windows? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out, answer is yes. So, and, and you and you basically have to, if you're going to do a full screen, you know, viewport to the map, you know, in, mm -hmm. in, in not reserve screen real estate for, for things like character roster and text window, you, you, you pretty much have to. So that worked out. So where we ended up was we've got pop-up windows for, all sorts of different things. They're, they're deeply integrated into the UI. You talk to an NPC, you get a pop-up window. Uh, you want to look at uh, the character roster and get into you know, player stats, more pop-up. Uh, ultimately, uh, you, you get into inventory. Uh, not just a pop-up window, but we have uh, menus uh, for like weapons and armor and spell, uh, spell books and things like that, where you tab between the menus and you use arrow keys to, you know, like scroll up and down a list. You want to ready a weapon, you hit the enter key. You want to unready it, you hit, you know, you hit the enter enter key. Um, they're they're what it, removing from the equation the typical eight bit CRPG interface of the day was often something like hand item B 
which you had to remember was dagger, uh, to player three, and then press R for ready, oh, number God. three for player three, <laughs> ready, uh, press B for B. <laughs> you know, I mean, that I, I sat my, my, my nieces down one time. They wanted to play some of the old school 8-bit uh, RPGs, and, and I, I, I sat them down playing one where you had to do that, and they just looked at me like I was crazy. Yes. <laughs> you oh, have to God. do what? How? Hunkamar, how do you do that again? You know, <laughs> and 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 they've played uh, Nox or Chaost in in its uh, you know more current iterations and went through the menu system and they were able to pick it up. You know, mm-hmm. even uh, you know uh, modern kids. Now, granted, I'm not expecting that Nox or Chaos is going to be uh, something that most you know kids would play uh, because you know uh, <laughs> unless they had some particular reason yeah. that they you know had an interest in Apex RPGs. But just seeing the fact that they could get the hang of it fairly quickly whereas they couldn't with you know the uh, uh the original ones from that era uh gave me a sense of accomplishment of okay we we did something useful here that should mm-hmm. uh, you know even for for players uh the the play back in the 80s i think will appreciate and just like do you, i don't think that's where the fun was in those games you know yeah. it's not not fighting with the clunky ui the fun was elsewhere so so we did some things like that as well yeah <laughs> And, like, for myself, I remember, like, a few years ago when GOG, like, first started, I picked up the original Might and Magic series. Like, never played them. Oh, I, sure. Mm-hmm. I load them on. I'm like, what the heck is this interface? Like, there's no mouse control. It's just, like, a bunch of key commands. I'm like, no, I, I don't have the time to figure this <laughs> thing out anymore. Sure. But it's very fascinating what you were just saying there about kind of taking like quality of life inclusions that we see today or even those that could have been possible and in a way like retrofitting them for this kind of design because again like for a lot of like the younger people or first time students like listening to us right now when we talk about stuff like pop-ups or hotkeys or you know information panes that kind of stuff is you know it's standard it's it's as common as breathing yeah exactly but like for a lot of old school games, like again, like up like for all the old people, uh, all of us oldies <laughs> listening to this right now, like we remember like those older style titles that back then there was no such thing as kind of like UI conventions or standardization. Like I've said this before, but while XCOM UFO Defense is one of my favorite games of all time, it is a a horribly rough game to go back to if you've had no experience with it. Sure. And that was just kind of how games were developed back then. Like, nobody could have thought that we would be having a multi-billion dollar industry and, you know, teaching design and having people, you know, have that as a potential career back in 1988, 1992, that kind of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was the Wild West, you know, <laughs> of, of, of a great many things back then. Uh, when it came when it came to game development, uh, you know UI included, and uh, it was uh, uh, you know an, an adventure uh, for especially if you didn't have the manual just oh, to yes. figure out you know how to how to you know fly the plane so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, go ahead. Uh, I was just about to ask you a question, but finish your thought first. Oh, I, I, I was I was just thinking about manuals and, mm-hmm. uh, and like, well, th- th- there were a few games that I did have the manual too, but mm-hmm. <laughs> many I did not. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun trying to play these older games. I have like no idea. Again, like kids these days, they get tutorials and YouTube videos. Back then, we just had to just keep pushing buttons and hope something happens. 
Oh, oh yeah, 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 exactly. The whole concept of the manual is is gone, and yeah. that reminds me uh, something I just wanted to share because I, I I just got such a it was such a de- de- delight to, to to read to you know kind of like understand where uh, things things were and where were at. I don't remember where I saw it, but it was an article uh, of a, uh, uh, a a teacher of a taught courses in in uh, modern computer science, uh, basically in I think a game development specialized program. And he said something like, you, you know, you have to call computer science game development to get anybody to sign up anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and went on to kind of describe like, well, there's a point in the class where, you know, he's having them play games and there's a point where he has them like play Ultima four. And he's like done this for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, he said, it's getting to just getting to a point where it, it's, it's just almost impossible anymore. And he said that the last time previous year, where he had the kids play uh, Ultima Four, uh, they they just they just couldn't grasp it and uh, would come back with you know all sorts of different questions. How do you this? How do they do that? And he would tell them like, well, you know that's in, in, in the manual. You know it it spells here. I'll show you where, where it is in there. And did you read the manual? And they're like, the manual? Where where was that? He's like, well, it's the, the, the you know when we started, I gave you you know the the the, the stuff you know that. And he's they're like, oh. I just thought that, that you have to read that. I just thought that was the stuff that came in the box. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, no, no, really. In order to play the game, you have to read this to know what to do in the game. I'm like, wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. That reminds me of a story. Like when I was giving a presentation at a library about the rise of the arcade industry, and I talked about online multiplayer. And I had to explain to this teenage girl about back then we had dial-up modems and you had to choose between either going online or calling somebody. And she gave me this look like I just described, you know, like some ancient technique, you know, like how the pioneers <laughs> used the internet back then. <laughs> there, there were, you know, like you were inventing the wheel or something. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like again, like so much about design these days, I think... A lot of people don't quite grasp just how much or how far things have come. Like, it, we really didn't start to see, like, standardization practices and things like that until probably, like, early to mid-thousands. And even with that said, like, we're still, like, seeing those kinds of issues today with trying to get people interested in a game. And, like, that first-time experience, you know, is, like, worth its weight in gold for a lot of developers. Yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, I I think I can appreciate where you're coming from there, just in mm-hmm. terms of uh, you know in the in the modern developing modern games. You know, my understanding mm-hmm. is you, you've got to you know hook the player within the first you know minute thirty something. Yeah. You know, and there's you, know, you if you expect them to read anything, uh, you know, forget mm-hmm. it. You know, yeah. you've already lost them. So totally different world now yeah uh so here's a question that i have for you as you were saying like a few minutes ago when you were kind of figuring out what you can or what you could and couldn't do on the apple II hardware mm-hmm. were there any like quality of life or i guess like experimentations or things you wanted to put in the game that just you it just couldn't work like you tried it and the system like the hardware just was not letting it go Ah, uh, let's see. Is there anything? I'm sure there was. I, mm-hmm. There's there there isn't anything that uh, that jumps right out uh, right out to me that fits into that category. But there definitely uh, some of this has just been 
uh, you know, it's been four years and <laughs> the, the yeah. experimentation uh, part of this happened in like the first year and a half. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and then I deliberately kind of forced the project to get disciplined to, mm -hmm. you know, have a defined, a more and more defined scope, uh, and, uh, and, and, and march towards that. So, yeah, I, I made, I made notes and I, I know at some point, you know, I want to write something about this whole experience. So I'm going to have to go back to those notes. I'm sure there was, uh, okay. some, some dead ends along the road. Okay. Now, uh, with regards to kind of. I'm trying to think of what else I wanted to ask because I have a few questions regarding like the hardware side. I'm trying to think of anything else gameplay related. I guess uh, one thing that I was curious about. Now, obviously, you've played a lot of old school CRPG design, and I was just wondering: were there any aspects of like modern day CRPGs that you either thought about including in the game, or that you wanted to kind of try to avoid or steer clear of? Sure. Uh, yes, and yes. So. Mm -hmm. One definitely, I was influenced a lot by uh, skill-based systems and uh, systems with trainers, uh, which I, I I was not exposed to until well beyond the 8-bit era. Uh, I'm not sure when those systems were first introduced, um, but uh, to, to to me at least, that was something from the uh, the, the post 8-bit era, uh, if not more modern era that uh, I thought was really cool. I love skill-based systems, mm -hmm. uh, classless skill-based, I should say, uh, and, 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 and I like the concept of, of it being intermingled with, with trainers, so you know, you, you've kind of got a, a couple different ways and strategies you can take towards managing your money and managing your time and, and, and uh, developing your characters. And so that, to me, that was one of the, those things where it was like, okay, well, can't can this be done on an Apple II? Is there a reason that it can't? Is it just too complicated uh, to 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 store the data for that, or to, can you know is there a problem parsing the data fast enough when it needs to be parsed in order to make things happen? Uh, all sorts of technical considerations rolled up into that, and uh, ultimately it turned out that uh, it was possible. That's that's exactly what we implemented was a classless skill based system uh, with trainers, and uh, so. Uh, so that uh, uh, that worked out as far as something that wanted to include. As far as didn't want to include, um, I absolutely did not want to go anywhere near the dynamic in uh, many modern games where the breadcrumbs for the player got to a point of, um, you know, from my perspective, taking away the fun of, of exploration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example... You know the uh, uh, the extreme would be uh, the the question mark is hovering over the NPC's <laughs> head who gives you the quest and you get the quest and then you follow the dashed line on the map uh, to uh, get to the, uh, uh, the, the 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 quest destination um, and 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 so on uh, and and as far as you know is that even possible in an eight bit. Uh, would be a question, but uh, I, I am aware of a, 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 a another eight bit in, in development in, in development in modern day that has done some things along that line with with those kinds of breadcrumbs. Uh, and I'm not going to say their name because I, I, I otherwise it might sound like I'm kind of <laughs> picking on them, and I don't I don't mean to be. I respect <laughs> their efforts, <laughs> but uh, it seems that it is possible if you prioritize your resources towards that to do something along that line 
And, and, and I, from my perspective, it's like, I don't care if it's possible. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I want a game that's going to encourage exploration. Uh, that's going to, you, you know, you, you're going to make maps, you know, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. going to, and you're going to love it or, or, or you're not going to love this game. Um, and, and, and have a notebook, a, a physical notebook that you write things in just like in the 1980s, that's the way it was, was done. And, and to me, that was fun. And to many, many people, uh, that was fun. Uh, to many people that was not fun. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. one of those things you either like that, uh, yeah style or 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 you didn't or 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 don't um but uh yeah that 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 was definitely a deliberate uh design decision as far as not incorporating that particular uh element of of modern games okay are there any examples of modern crpg design that you really enjoy not so much a point in nox arcade so maybe just that you play like on your free time uh i'm sorry was the question are there any games yeah that I play modern mm-hmm. games um, I, I haven't done a lot of game playing while I've been doing the Knox case <laughs> yeah. development just as a matter of discipline. However, uh, yes, is the answer to your question. Uh, before I got, um, got engrossed in Knox cast, I, I loved playing Skyrim. I, I played it start mm-hmm. to finish. Well, not that there really is a finish, but, uh, pra- as a, as a practical, uh, finish several times. Uh, I absolutely love that. I'm not sure if I would have loved it as much if I had played the earlier Elder Scrolls. The more I learn about the earlier Elder Scrolls mm-hmm. games, the more I understand why the people that loved those were disappointed in Skyrim. Mm-hmm. Um, but, well, you know, ignorance is bliss. I loved it. <laughs> uh, and uh, I also played Shroud of the Avatar. Um, I took actually a little bit of a break to do that uh, when uh, the official release happened. I think that was a year ago last spring Mm -hmm. and uh, had some fun playing that. Um, And as far as other modern games go, uh, I'm sure there's a few others, but that's those are the ones that came to mind. And like, as you were just saying, like with regards to, you know, the appeal and almost like the repellent to some people of these old school games it's always like that in and of itself is like a podcast or two, like a worth of discussions. Because we've certainly seen, especially this decade, with the rise of Kickstarter and crowdfunding, kind of like allowing these smaller and niche kind of designs to flourish in a way. Again, like stuff like Nox Arceus, uh, I think I think Pillars of Eternity was kickstarted as well. Like there's definitely a market for these old style or these old school style CRPGs, but there's always that trouble or there's that challenge of, you know, how much you want to add modern conveniences and will adding this, while it may make the game, you know, different, is that distracting from your original message or concept? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, th- I think that that is a key, uh, consideration and, and, and dilemma ultimately. And, um, you know, if if as a developer you're going to prioritize, uh, you know, the size of, of, of your market, you know, that's going to lead you to, you know, do a lot more of, of those modern convenience type things. And uh, I think it's it's a fine line and a slippery slope. At what point do you go so far down that road that, like you said, it's no longer mm-hmm. really reflective of the original vision and then you lose, you know, sort of the more hardcore you know yeah. part of the, the audience and uh uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it that way. It's, it's just a, a, a different way of doing it. Yeah. And I knew right from the outset that I, I, I was all about modern conveniences, but uh, I don't want to take away from the 
you know, that that secret sauce of what, you know, made the 1980s 8-bit uh, uh, CRPGs so fun. And, and I thought, you know, if it's something that's going that was just an annoyance even to, you know, the the hardcore players, um, you know, then then sure. Like like I said, I don't think anybody necessarily really got their kicks out of uh, making it complicated to move items between yeah. players and ready them. I mean, oh, <laughs> maybe there will be somebody that writes in that says, no, I live for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, that that to me didn't seem like that was a thing or in conversation you know talking to npcs uh it's a very ultima style uh ultima four and five style uh interface for that where you know you put in the uh name name job by <laughs> mm-hmm. you know uh sort of a thing you put it you type in the keywords uh uh that uh you, in, in the in the in some keywords uh the, the npcs will respond to and some that they won't uh, after they've, you know, given you their introductory spiel or they've responded to the job question, they tell you some stuff. Um, in Ultima, you were gu- like guessing. It was the I think uh, somebody re- described it as it was the guess the noun game. Mm-hmm. You know, when when they uh, the NPC answers the job question, you guess which noun they're going to elaborate on, and then from that response, you have to guess again which noun are they going to elaborate on uh, to to kind of ring out the quest information from that npc and so that was another one where um you know we decided that you know playing guess the noun was not really something that anybody probably found all that fun uh it was just something you did and the rest of the game was so fun you know you, you just you just went with it so what we did instead was um uh, uh, we capitalize the keywords that the NPC will respond to. Uh, and, and that gives a similar sort of a experience to uh, the way it works, worked in Ultima 6, where they, they started highlighting the keywords. And then, of course, you had mouse support and you could click on them. Or even Shroud of the Avatar today, uh, mm-hmm. when an NPC responds, uh, you know, the, the, there's text on the screen and there's keywords that are uh, that are highlighted and, and you click on them and that's that's how you you know, talk to people in Shroud of the Avatar. Um, so in Oxford case, of course, you have to type the keyword in, but at least you're not guessing what the keyword is. Yeah. And it doesn't remove the experience, which is, and this is important, it doesn't remove the important experience of, you know, well, maybe you don't know to ask uh, John about the magic sword because you haven't yet talked to Fred uh, in some other town who tells you, well, you should go talk to John about the magic sword. Mm-hmm. That that mechanic is still alive and well because uh, magic sword is not in John's, you know, converta- conversation text that is uh, visible to the player, uh, you know, just based on asking name, job, and, you know, things like that. You have to know, you have to get the clue from the other NPC to know to ask John about the magic sword. So that all still works just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that was another case where we thought, you know, no, no one was going to miss that. Uh, but as far as anything else went, we thought, you know, if this is going to take away from that, that original CRPG, 8-bit CRPG uh, experience, then, then even, you know, even if it is more convenient and even if it is possible on the platform, you know, we're not going to do it just to stay true to the vision, to your, to your point before. And yeah, like that kind of discussion about changing like the text parser interface, that kind of thing. Again, like it's one of those examples that you're keeping what you know the spirit of that design, but you're figuring out a way to make it more digestible to modern audiences. Yep. Again, the inventory UI, like that right in there, can it drove me crazy playing those old school games. I'm sure it drove <laughs> a lot of other people nuts yeah. as well. 
Yep, absolutely. And then and then we look within that, you know, sort of uh, context. We we look for uh, how can we then push it along the next step. And and like with the text parser, since we were on that subject, uh, what we did there to sort of you know push the envelope was we added the construct uh, or game mechanic of of uh, voice mode. And when you're talking to an NPC, you you can select between three different modes. You're either yelling, you're whispering, or you're talking in a normal voice, and it def- defaults to normal voice. And you'll get different responses from NPCs based on, well, are you yelling at them, or <laughs> you know, <laughs> are you whispering, or what? And uh, in many cases, uh, you know, it's just you know, kind of a silly sort of a response, like, hey, what are you yelling for? Um, but in other cases, it, it actually it's a puzzle. Uh, a, a game mechanic for puzzles, it, you know, like for example, um, you know, maybe some somebody tells you to go and talk to, uh, you know, John in the pub and ask him about the treasure map. On, um, you know, maybe he's not going to want to talk about it there if you're if you're yelling at him or or even talking in a normal voice. But if you whisper it to him, you know, maybe, uh, you know, he will tell you about it or maybe he won't even tell you about it then, but he'll at least acknowledge that he knows about it and say something like, you know, well, not here, implying, oh, well, maybe there's another time in a less busy place that John will tell me about this and uh, adding a dimension of time into uh, the mechanic as well as far as when NPCs will tell you things. Um, and neither of those elements of, of, of tone of voice <clears throat> or the situational awareness uh, was present in, in any of the other conversation systems that I saw in in the 8-bit realm. So that was one that we we uh, we added in there, which uh, uh, will hopefully be be a fun mechanic. Mm-hmm. And that actually leads me to the uh, my last question, gameplay wise, for you about uh, Nox Arceus. And that was, as you said, that you've been trying to like one like your core visions for the game was a kind of say, okay, if, if people were still developing games for the Apple II, you know, this would be like that kind of evolution or that iteration. From a design standpoint, are there any other like major examples you can think of, of like game systems or game design elements that kind of fit with that mold? You know, something that's in uh, Nox Arceus that could have existed if people were still developing, but still like is unique to this one. Sure. Um, something that is unique to the Apple II uh, 8-bit RPGs, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure uh, on, on the other 8-bit platforms on this one, but unique to uh, the Apple II is uh, we basically, uh, we've got uh, some pretty impressive spell, special effects for spells. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, to put some context to it, on Apple II, in, in, a, in a tile RPG, you cast a spell, and pretty much what you were going to get was the screen would, you know, uh, get inversed into, you know, white and black, and you'd get a sound, and, you know, you, you would get uh, a very basic-looking uh, shape, like a, a blue uh, target symbol that would, you know, kind of fly towards the, uh, you, you know, whoever, whoever casting the spell towards, like if it was a fireball spell, that's kind of what you would get. So what we did is um, we still have, you know, the inverted, uh, you know, goes to, to white, white and inverted black screen and the, and the sound and all that. But what we added in was uh, a, a more of a representation of what the spell was doing. Like for a fireball, we have a, a graphical shape in the size of a tile uh, that looks like, you know, it looks like flames. Uh, was done by an actual artist, looks like flames. 
and and that shoots across the screen uh, to the target that you specify. And when it gets to the destination, it explodes and fire tiles appear <laughs> over the uh, you know the affected area. Or my personal favorite is the lightning bolt spell. You get an actual lightning bolt. It looks like a lightning <laughs> bolt artistically, you know, uh, wh- white and blue jagged edges kind of thing, along with an electrical shocking like sound. Uh, and you see that lightning bolt shoot out from your wizard to impacting uh, the target. And uh, that kind of thing, you know, just didn't didn't happen. Um, and especially not uh, in a way where it was like going uh, uh, jailbroken from the tile grid. Um, typically. One, you know, a tile game would, would rigidly operate within the, the tile system, and it's like you're casting the spell north, south, east, or west, and that's what you're, you know, you're dealing with, uh, rather than, well, I want to target, you know, this, 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 uh, this enemy that's, that, that's at an angle, and, and then when I shoot off my lightning bolt, have that lightning bolt just kind of go at an angle from the, uh, from the player's icon you know, to, uh, to the mobs icon, that sort of thing just didn't happen on the, the Apple II before. Cause that was like mixing arcade style graphics and, uh, the tile system kind of graphics. And there's, there's a number of technical reasons why, uh, it was really hard to do and, and not really commercially practical, uh, probably to do and why it wasn't done and, you know, things like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that was something where, um, you know, we just put in the time and, and saw it as an opportunity to, to push beyond, uh, and, uh, we're able to, uh, we're able to get it in there. Okay. And, uh, before we move on and talk a little bit more about kind of the programming side and the hardware of Nox Arceus, are there any other elements from a gameplay or game design point of view that we didn't touch that you would like to cover now? Uh, just real briefly, I wanted to, uh, to emphasize story. Okay. Um, the Nox Cast has a very deep and rich story. Um, you know, it's 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 not uh, like a combatless you know adventure game like some you know were. It, it's definitely it, there's combat in the game. Combat is very central mm-hmm. to the game, um, but it's not you know just a grinder either. You know, there's a very uh, rich story that the player is navigating through and solving puzzles and quests and. Uh, keeping them engaged, and the combat kind of gets mixed in around in, uh, uh, in in between of that, and and even goes so far as to have story combat integrations, like you know maybe to to, to defeat a particular boss monster. There's no way you're going to do it if you haven't learned things through exploring the storyline. You know tips that are going to somehow let you know what his weakness is. You know, or or maybe actually in the course of combat you you know the the the, the boss starts you know talking to you, you know telling you things like oh. Gonna have to pay attention to this. So the the goal there was basically to create a engaging experience that was going to be uh, not just a a uh, adventure game with no combat, but not a grinder. Kind of go you know somewhere in between and and just sort of holistically uh, spend more time on the story that than than typically uh, was spent uh, back at that time. You know, given the uh, the pressure of uh, you know some of the production deadlines and things like that. You know, and like we were just describing there, more like that's one of like, the more fascinating things about what I hear of a lot of the old school CRPGs that they're not really focused entirely on you know, as you said, like just pure combat. There is a story, there is this idea of exploration, there's a lot of adventure game aspects yeah. into old school CRPG design. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, I think has been lost to some extent, you know, over, over time that we're trying to recapture. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other quick question just came to my mind. As you were describing, like, the various ways you can play and solve solutions, you mentioned earlier that you're going for a classless-based system for, like, character yes. development. Like, what is, like, obviously I know a I play a lot of RPGs. I know what that entails in modern games, but how does that work for Nox Arceus with gi- giving the player just like, do they just have like free reign to learn everything? Essentially, yes. You know, you, the, the, this, this will weave into something else that might be u- useful. The, the startup of the game is very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start with one character and, you know, you're not rolling stats or anything like that. Uh, you basically choose uh, a race. You get a, 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 a you know a traditional you know human elf dwarf that kind of thing, uh, which will give you a very minor bonus in uh, the uh, the character's uh, stats based on that. Um, but it's really more you know more window dressing than anything. Uh, so very quickly you know somebody's up and running in the game. They're not sitting there creating a party and and rolling stuff. Uh, uh, you can have up to six characters. Um, and, uh, what you do is you, you find them, you know, through going into towns and castles and talking to NPCs, some of them will join your party and that's how you fill up the other five slots. You can also, there's also spells for summoning and things like that too, that would be on top of the six. Um, so anyway, uh, that's some context, uh, to, uh, to the question. And, uh, so, uh, when you start like that, um, you know, other than you, you, your slight bonus based on which race you chose, um, you know, you're, 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 you're in a position where, yeah, you can, uh, develop your character down, you know, kind of a magic path or more, you know, heavy weapons and armor path or more, you know, get into range weapons or kind of do some of each. You can really just blend that any way you want. Um, it's fully open in, in that respect. Okay. Nice. And yeah, like that kind of design, like keeping with like the freedom to explore, I guess, are there any, like passive or i guess non-combat skills that players can learn in the game yes uh so the skills uh i might miss one or two but off the top of my head there's skills for melee weapons ranged weapons uh for uh dodge parry critical hits lock picking and pilfering i believe that's the list it certainly is not a lot of skills compared to any kind of more modern Mm -hmm. game uh you know this this becomes a reflection of what what could the platform support um, I was just thrilled that it was able to be done at all, you know, <laughs> but, uh, it, it's enough that through some of the play testing, we've confirmed that it, it's fun, <laughs> you know, it's enough to be fun. Uh, and, uh, and, and it basically, it reinforces, we, we've, the, our dev- character development model, uh, it, it really stands up very well because, uh, even though every it's open as far as how you develop your characters in whichever direction you want, you're making important choices, and um, the more, uh, the farther along you get, you know, the, the more developed your character gets. Like, you know, if you're if you're go- going to go down the path of, you know, kind of the traditional fighter, um, you know, you, you, you got attributes of strength, intelligence, and dexterity. Only three. Um, you're you're going to be when you level up, you get points uh, to uh, uh, apply to increase your base attributes. Uh, which are distinct from skills, uh, and uh, you know you're going to want to put those points on strength if you're if you're going to be a heavy weapons and armor kind of a fighter, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 you're going to want to work on your melee weapons skill, which you do by 
you know, basically engaging in melee combat and, 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 and there's trainers and things like that. Um, and if you, you know, roll along for a handful of levels and, you know, then decide, oh, well, I really want to cast some spells too. You, you, you can do that, but you know, you're, you're developing that, uh, uh, your spells uh, from from the beginning. You're not going to be casting level five spells uh, like you might be using level five equipment because uh, that's what you've been focusing on. You're kind of starting at the beginning of the of the tree, if you will, <laughs> yeah. uh, if you then want to get into magic. Uh, so so the decisions on what skills you want to work on and what base attributes you want to increase uh, have a very significant meaning with how your 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 characters develop and how they perform in in combat and in out of combat situations getting into the ones like lock picking and pilfering and uh things like that and again when we talk about things from a design standpoint we could be here all day <laughs> just describing <laughs> things as a quick time check we are just about at an hour in so i figure um i do want to talk a little bit more or at least give you the chance to talk a little bit more about kind of programming the game I'll have a few, I think, Kickstarter-related questions for you. So I figure maybe another, I would say maybe 30 minutes if that works for sure. you. Sure. Okay. Yep, absolutely. All right. Back to it in three, two, one. Yeah, and again, like, when we're talking about, like, CRPG design, GRPG design, like, these topics can fit their own podcast. And we're not careful. We'll just be here all day long <laughs> talking about this stuff. But Indeed. Uh, uh, considering like a major part of Nox Arceus was the fact that you were developing this for the Apple II and then kind of porting it to modern systems, I want to give you a chance to kind of talk a little bit more about what that's kind of been like. Because again, I know a lot of my audience are programmers. I'm sure they're going to eat this part up. So, sure. Like I said at the start, I am not a programmer by trade, so I'm sure I'm going to ask you a lot of stupid questions. So just uh, be prepared for them. <laughs> Oh, uh, no, no worries. Ask, uh, ask whatever you'd like. Uh, did you want me to start out with just kind of like an overview of, you know, what it's like or how, how did you want to begin? Um, I think probably like my first question will have been more of like an overview or kind of like where it all began. So I'll let you take it away. Okay. All right. Well, so basically, um, I, I, in my research and development stage of the project, uh, I was writing some code in 6502 assembly sitting in front of my Apple IIe. Uh, I was using an assembler called Eliza and, you know, literally doing it the old fashioned way, like it was, was done back in the day. Uh, and uh, I, I made, I spent a fair amount of time, uh, probably a couple of months doing that. Uh, at the same time as I was doing that, I realized that while well, there, there, there were cross-assemblers and other options uh, for, for doing development, but I wanted to make sure that I had a good feel for assembly language on the real hardware. I had done a lot of programming on the Apple II and other languages, uh, AppleSoft and so forth back in the 80s, but, uh, but not so much in assembly. So I, I, I got myself a good couple, two-month immersion on the real hardware with, with uh, 6502 assembly. And then uh, set out to basically develop my, uh, my, my tool chain and build pipeline into something that was going to be more practical and scalable uh, to approach the project. Now, granted, back in the day, you know, people developed whole games on the Apple II and things like that. But uh, I, I didn't think that uh, that was uh, 
necessary from my perspective to feel fulfilled. I didn't need to do that. And the end result of what I was going to be able to produce was going to be, uh, you know, I, I would be able to get something done, you know, that was better, faster, uh, if, if I leveraged, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the more modern, uh, tool capabilities. So that leads me into, you know, finding a cross assembler and there's a variety of cross assemblers out there. Um, CC65 is popular, Merlin 32, another big popular one, uh, Acme is another. Uh, I ended up settling on one called SBASM, uh, and there's pros and cons to uh, to all the uh, cross-assemblers, but uh, basically, uh, if all you want to do is write 6502 assembly language code, SBASM is perfect for that. It doesn't distract you with other capabilities that might be great, but if you don't need them, are just one more thing to kind of navigate around. Um, so the uh, uh, the cross assembler sits on a Windows uh, 10 machine, and I write the source code, the 6502 source code, uh, in Notepad++. Uh, the cr- the cross assembler takes as an input, you know, just text files, um, as as is uh, typical in a lot of modern programming. Um, so uh, what what the what the cross assembler does for is it basically allows me to get the efficiency benefits of using a mouse and, uh, and copy and paste and um, not having, you know, being limited to labels that are like four characters long because that actually, you know, takes up memory and disk space somewhere, which on the Apple II is a big deal and not a big deal on a modern computer. Um, but but it, it matters for efficiency, you know, uh, not having to remember what, you know, this four letter label actually means because I can make it 20 characters long, you know, that's an efficiency thing. So, um, that, 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 that's really the, the, the benefit of the modern tools on the raw, uh, on the programming end, you know, it doesn't do any of the work for you. You still have to, you know, lay out the, uh, the assembly op codes and, um, you know, think through the logic and, uh, so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, you run a build on the cross assembler and it gives you a binary file uh, in uh, in 6502, and you, you can then plug that into an emulator. Uh, well, you have to get it onto a disk image, but uh, you get it onto a disk image, you can then plug that into an emulator and then see the results of what you programmed and, you know, is it doing what you want to be doing? And, it, it, you know, uh, start the debugging process to, of going back to your code and fixing things and run the cross-assembler again and fire it up in the emulator and uh, and so forth. Uh, and I've got that very automated so that, uh, you know, uh, with, with batch files, basically, um, when I'm, do, you know, done writing a chunk of code, you know, I basically run go, uh, dot bat and, uh, it builds the binary files and excuse me, copies them into the right directory, uh, so that the, uh, the emulator, uh, knows where to find them. And I mean, I can be seeing the results of what I did on screen in like 60 seconds, basically, um, what you, what, uh, is, as, it's actually probably kind of a long time for a modern computer, but the cross-assembler I'm using is uh, uh, built in Python, so there's a bit of overhead to that. And uh, we're up to 300,000 lines of 6502 uh, code, so it actually takes, even on the modern computer, a full 60 seconds to put that all together. Um, and then with the, the, the Apple II hardware, where that comes into to play is every once in a while, you know, we do most of the testing in, in the emulator, but every once in a while we need to test it on the real Apple II hardware just to make sure because there are bugs in, in the emulators and the emulators will sometimes let you do things uh, that the real hardware won't. 
and uh, so they kind of have to check back home from time to time. And for that, I've got a serial cable uh, connected into like a USB to RS-232 uh, uh, serial adapter plugged into my modern laptop. And then a serial cable that, that, that plugs into one end of that uh, and then into uh, the, uh, uh, the printer port on the Apple II. And so then on the Apple II side, uh, we've got some software written by somebody else in the Apple II community that basically grabs the bitstream off of the, uh, the printer port and, 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 and bundles that up into the proper format uh, and then writes it off to uh, floppy disk, uh, five-inch, quarter-inch floppy. Uh, so when, uh, when the time comes to do the test on the real hardware, uh, you know, we run our build, 60 seconds, and then we fire up uh, the software on the Apple II that uh, that grabs the bitstream, uh, and uh, that takes that's maybe a five-minute process uh, to then uh, th- then get it out onto floppy disks, uh, and then from there we can boot up the floppy disks on the Apple II and see is this what we're expecting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that that's kind of a, a overview of the programming, uh, the or the I should say the coding side. Uh, of the process. The other aspect gets into like uh, tool chain for developing art and uh, that, that, that sort of thing. And uh, uh, at first what I did with that was I got out the graph paper and, you know, marked off, you know, which pixels were on and which pixels were off uh, on, you know, a tiles, uh, a 2d tile, you know, size uh, piece of the screen and uh, converted that to, binary flipped it around converted it to hacks put that into the source code and you know saw on screen okay is that the graphics that i'm expecting did that a couple of times and decided that's enough of that you know that was literally like how richard garriott did it for you know the ultimate games on the graph paper like that uh but after you know doing it a few times and 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 sort of making sure i had a handle on the process uh i then set out to build a tool for creating uh uh, 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 8-bit art, uh, uh, 8-bit Apple II art specifically, because Apple II has its own graphics rules different from other systems, which are pretty insane. Um, but so we've got a tool for that that uh, our uh, uh, 8-bit artist uh, Bill Gigi uses for uh, for creating his stuff. Uh, and and it still takes some technical knowledge. Not any artist would be able to use that tool. Um, it's uh, fortunately, Bill was, uh, you know, he grew up with Apple II computers in the 80s and had some familiarity with uh, uh, with, with some some programming elements, things like that. So we were sort of able to bridge the gap between us with uh, a tool that uh, enabled him to do his art a whole lot more quickly, not have to horse around in binary or hex, but, you know, still had to kind of keep in mind some of the bizarre rules uh of the Apple II, like where you can put colors and where you can't, and uh, some stuff like that. But but all in all, uh, another huge uh, efficiency gain there uh, as well in terms of uh, being you know creating the art rather than it being all done on graph paper. It being in a tool like that, uh, you know, is a huge efficiency gain. So you know, as a result, uh, you know, the uh, the efficiency from the cross assembler um, and uh, and from that art tool. You know, the, the end result is we're able to do a game on the scale uh, of like Ultima 5, uh, you know, with a much smaller team, uh, even though, you know, there's a, a dozen of us involved. Uh, most most P3 
people are uh, don't have a lot of time, and you know they're they're contributing where they can here and there. I'm contributing a lot of time uh, myself. But if if you if you added it all together, you know there's maybe you know one or two uh, full time employees worth of output happening there. Whereas Ultima Five was built by a team of like twelve full time people. <laughs> so uh, over a span of I think five years, and we're coming up on year four. So. Uh, that, that's, uh, I'm just putting some math to it to <laughs> illustrate the advantage of that, that, uh, modern tools bring to developing on the, uh, the real authentic 8-bit hardware. It, it's, uh, it, it's definitely a time gain, uh, that, that's realized by that. And as a result, we're able to put the time into some features that just wouldn't have been commercially practical back in the day, you know, without those time efficiency saving uh, tools. As you said earlier in the cast, you spend like the first th- three years of development simply like coming up with the tools and the engine that you want yeah. Knox Arcaeus to be. Correct. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, it was uh, at, at that three year mark, uh, we had proof of concept demos of all the things the engine could do. You know, you mm-hmm. could kind of cruise around on a map and, you know, see the animation and, oh, enter in a town and, you know, a town that was perfectly pointless to do anything other than walk around and just observe oh hey yes there's merchant and, you know, uh etc et you know we had those kind of you know uh demo like things at the year three mark but what happened at year three was then okay now now we need to actually write a story <laughs> and uh develop statistical systems and start to create the actual content that players are going to see and that process only started a year ago <laughs> at the year three mark and I think that's very interesting about you did, trying to create like your own tools in a way that still fit within the Apple II architecture. Yeah, yeah, that that uh, uh, that was definitely uh, a interesting part of the process as well. And um, it was uh, the, there, there was a lot. How would I describe that? It was like it, it took a lot of knowing the really low-level architecture of the Apple II, basically, to, to really just kind of nail down what exact format did things need to, to be in. Um, and, and and understanding how some of the, uh, you know, some, some of the tools, like I said, there's a program on the Apple II written by someone else in the Apple II community that's like grabbing the bitstream off of the parallel port and writing it to floppy. You know, so we had the advantage of a couple of really low-level tools that other people had written as well. And we had to really understand how, how those tools worked. You know, what format were they expecting? You know, it was it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of stuff that sort of had to line up between the real hardware and the actual you know content we were creating to to just you know make sure everything can talk to everything else. That that was really the what the exercise in uh, in the tool creation. And like, I'm sure like somebody's listening to this. Probably, I'm going to ask this question, but what was the display like, again? Like, obviously, with Knox Arcaeus, you wanted to build this game to emulate and kind of iterate on the Apple II style or on old school CRPG. A few minutes ago, you said about emulation or using emulators to kind of test things, but they would still not be like the best version. So I guess. What was, I guess, like the main reason, like not to build the game entirely using emulation, but having to build it explicitly on the Apple II framework and design? Sure. So with uh, with emulators, uh, first thing I, I, I want to say on that is that 
they're actually very good. Apple II emulators are are very good, and you know they will play the games from the '80s, and you will get an experience that is very close to to real hardware. Uh, and and uh, you know the main difference is. There's a little bit of differences in the way the graphics look on screen, but you'd have to be an Apple II graphics expert to to tell the difference, honestly. So as a practical matter, no real difference there. Uh, The main thing as a a player you're going to notice the difference of is, you know, the keyboard feels different. And you're looking at it on a modern monitor as opposed to, you know, on on an Apple monitor. So uh, from a player perspective, you know, a player is going to get a lot of enjoyment playing, you know, something uh, that's running an Apple II emulator, if fundamentally that's the kind of game that they want to play. But if for convenience, doing it from an emulator versus, well, they don't have an Apple II or you know whatever, nobody should feel like they're not going to get a very authentic 8-bit Apple II gaming experience out of an emulator. You will. The reason that um, we, we felt that we needed to do the development on the, uh, on the Apple II uh, or, or have the, the the Apple II in the development uh, process is because uh, there's the way the emulators were built. As it was kind of like, all right, so we're building an emulator. Does it work with Ultima? Does it work with Bard's Tale? Does it work? You know, make sure you're going to make sure that it works with you know the big '80s titles, right? And and uh, that's that's like your testing cycle if you're building an emulator, uh, an Apple II emulator. Uh, and you get it to a point where it does, then until somebody reports bugs, there's not really much else you can do as a developer. Mm-hmm. And um, since we're building something from scratch that's new, invariably there's going to be things that we end up doing that are just, you know, slightly different than perhaps was done, uh, you know, in other games, including uh, we, we actually, uh, one of our team members uh, rewrote the entire floppy disk controller that Steve Wozniak uh, wrote in 1979. <laughs> uh, totally rewrote that and made it faster, um, and which has enabled uh, some, some cool features in the game. But that introduces a different sort of dynamic that's going on at a really low level in the way that the game runs that just didn't exist in, in games in the 80s because in the 80s, Everybody was using Steve Wozniak's disc controller that he wrote in 1979. That's just the way you did it. So as a result, um, you know, we'll have situations where um, we run the game in an emulator and it works just fine, but we run it on a, a real Apple II hardware and it crashes, uh, and we have to basically diagnose, well, what's the bug in the emulator where it's not uh, uh, basically allowing a legal 6502 operation to, uh, to occur. Uh, and you know, you could say, well, all right, get it from a programming standpoint, but who cares, you know, why, why not just do it in, in emulation and, and, and people just play the game that way and they don't know the difference. A uh, couple reasons. One is there's actually a lot of people who want to play it on the real hardware. Um, we did a poll, uh, a while back of, okay, how, are, you know, are you going to play it in an emulator? Or are you going to play it on, uh, uh, real hardware, you're going to play it on floppy, you're going to play it on hard drive, because you could actually put a hard drive in, in some of the Apple IIs. And it came back about 50-50. So there's actually a lot of people who want to play it on the real hardware. So that's one reason we, we have to get it right on that. And I have a lab of Apple II computers uh, of uh, well, one, two, three, four, five <laughs> Apple every Every major model of, of, of Apple II, I, I've got it uh, in my lab here for doing that kind of testing. And, and, and the other reason to do it is because uh, the emulators 
um, it, it would still be possible to stumble into uh, an emulator bug problem, um, even if the intention was for people to always play it in emulators, because there's a handful of different populator emulators out there. And creating something new, it's still possible to you know do something a little bit differently than had been done in the 80s games in terms of the raw machine instructions going through the you know the emulated CPU. Uh, and have it work in one emulator and not in another one, <laughs> you know. And, and then at that point, if you're not checking it against real hardware, it's like, okay, well, wh where's the problem? Is the bug in my code? Is the bug in emulator number one? Is it the bug in emulator number two? <laughs> you know. So going back to the mothership of the real hardware as as the final authority is really helpful in determining where the problem is. Uh, and and the emulator developers have been great. You know, uh, I'm. Uh, friendly with uh with most of them if not all of them uh of the major ones and uh you know they're great you know i report bugs and they fix them and you know we 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 keep it rolling <laughs> and it's definitely fascinating to like talk about again like having to you know the emulation versus the original hardware like that and the fact that again like for a lot of people at least more on the mainstream side like they will just go immediately to the emulation but as you said, like, there are going to be those issues where if you're just working purely on that, it becomes a lot harder to figure out, you know, where those problems are coming in at. Definitely. Definitely. Now, to be fair, one, uh, one approach we could have taken would be uh, develop the game to run an Apple II emulator. That's the only way it's going to be uh, released and basically create a proprietary closed environment where we bundle the game with an emulator mm -hmm. Uh, we don't expose the actual disk images to anybody, so so they're playing a uh, they're playing they'd be playing Noxer Chaos in an Apple II emulator that's running behind the scenes that they'd never see. They'd never have the ability to run it in a different emulator or on real hardware, uh, but it would feel like an authentic CRPG because it was still developed within the the eight bit constraints. That would have been another way to go um, theoretically. Um, but, uh, that was, that, that wasn't the way we, we, we went, uh, largely because of the interest in people, I think, I guess playing it, uh, I would say playing it real hardware, uh, not, not to mention that when the project started, I wouldn't have considered that possibility. I, <laughs> I just kind of spouted it off. Now, well, theoretically we could have done it that way. I, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about it in those terms, uh, at, at that point. So, um, and, and, and what we expect to do at this point is that we, uh, when we deliver the game, we likely will bundle it with an emulator so that it's as simple as possible. If people are going to play it on the PC, don't make it hard for them. You know, we'll, ha we'll likely, uh, if all goes according to plan, uh, you know, have, have, uh, have it bundled so people can just click on an executable and, and it runs like any other application. Uh, but the disk image will be distributed with it. And if somebody wants to download the disk image and run it in a different emulator, they can. Or if they want to download the disk image and, and write it off to floppy uh, and run it on real hardware, they can. Uh, and of course, for, uh, uh, I actually, I didn't specifically mention this, but uh, um, we we've, we've, uh, have a boxed set version of the game, just like uh, the 80s, uh, full color professional artwork game box with a printed manual, cloth map, and uh, feelies in the box. Uh, and uh, five and a quarter inch discs. <laughs> um, so that's the that's the other way for people that want to play it on real hardware rather than 
you know, writing it to Floppy yourself and going through those technical hoops. If you get our, our collector's edition in the game box, the floppies come right in there, <laughs> as well as a USB stick that has um, the, uh, uh, the emulator version uh, on it as well. So it's kind of a pa- package for everything. I guess here's a question. I'm not sure if you would know this or not, but like in terms of like people having access to like Apple II or even just like I know there's in the modern retro scene, there are uh, third party versions of, you know, third party platforms that can run NES games or Genesis games or et cetera. Is there like a booming or just some kind of market for people wanting to play like the original Apple II? Yeah, there's there 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 are people out there that uh, uh, there's a there's a thriving Apple II community, I, I, I should say, um, and uh, there's a convention every year called Kansas Fest mm-hmm. uh, that's been going on since the 1980s. Uh, in, in the 80s, it was a Apple II you know convention uh, that was like held in you know hotels and things, and all the big vendors came and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, the rest of the world moved on from uh, the Apple II. Uh, but Kansas Fest didn't. Uh, it just kind of kept going, and uh, it, it's it's a really uh, unique convention. It's held uh, in Kansas City uh, at a in a college dorm on the Rockhurst University campus, and uh, people come from all over the world uh, every year to Kansas City to this convention and stay in this college dorm, and 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 we all act like we're you know college kids and you know fool around with our Apple IIs and stay up all night you know coding and it's it's a week of fun it's like summer camp for nerds is probably the best <laughs> way to describe it uh, and uh, and and so so yeah I mean that 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 that's that's uh, uh, an example of of the thriving Apple II community today and uh, the hardware is still out there you know it, it hasn't failed every year I've gone I've, I've gone three years in a row now. Uh, I walk into the commons of the of the university dorm where it's held, and uh, never fails that there, there's just piles of Apple II equipment. You know, you can't hardly walk to get through. You know, the commons to get to the stairs to go up to your room. There's so much Apple II gear lying around. You know, stacks of Apple IIe's, stacks of Apple II GSs, and uh, so uh, it. The, 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 there are people there that are still into it, and the hardware is accessible. Uh, it's not hard to find, uh, and if you don't have to even go to Kansas City to get it, just hopping up on eBay, it's not hard to find. Uh, you know the original Apple II gears. So um, it certainly is not uh, like a huge market or anything of people that are you know still into playing games on the real hardware, but it's definitely there. Right. Now, uh, this next question, I'm not sure this is either going to be a very long or very short answer for you. I think it's going to be on the long side. <laughs> but uh, one thing that I want to ask, and again, this is like coming at it from somebody with not a programming background. But, like, obviously, when I think about game design, I had the same discussion with a, another indie developer, this was, I think, a few months ago, about he was creating his own engine from scratch to build his game. That... When a lot of people, including myself, think about game design, or at least modern game development, we think about things using a game engine. Again, Game Maker, Unity, Unreal, you name it. That is kind sure. of like that wrapper or that the, the thing that creates a game and you export it. Mm-hmm. With building Nox Arceus, and again, as I think you said this earlier, like, there is no quote-unquote Apple II game engine. Like There's not Correct. an engine out there that you're just using. Like What, what is like, kind of like the process of building a game like this and again i'm sure this could be like an hour long answer we're not careful <laughs> sure well uh let, let me let me take a shot at this and and i i've, I've been asked by a, a number of people to write a book on 
how to make a 8-bit RPG on uh, the Apple II because uh, there there isn't one. Uh, <laughs> so so that's the first thing to know about what it's like <laughs> is you know there isn't even a book out there that that says how to do this. Uh, there's a couple books out there like on arcade games on the Apple II, um, it, which is useful. You know you can learn some things about about graphics uh, with that, and and I went read several of them, but you know that's maybe a tenth of the total information. So. Um, doing it from scratch without the benefit uh, of, of, of knowing anybody who had done it before, which was the position that I was in when I started. All, all I had was my own knowledge that I had developed in the 80s of uh, experimenting with, you know, getting tile engines to, to work, you know, programming them in AppleSoft, which not powerful enough of a language to do it. But uh, so that's kind of what, it, what I went into it with. And um you know, it was a, it, it was a, a very heavy on the research development. You have to be very patient and be willing to chase down information. I mean, I was spelunking around in like old CompuServe uh, news groups that had been rolled up and archived into like you know comp .sys you know whatever the you know uh, in google's hosting them now and but like literally as, I, as i'm searching for different you know keywords to try to find out things about like bootloaders and uh, other esoteric topics uh i i'm like getting hits off of you know messages that are in these archives and i look at the date and it's like 1991 you know <laughs> um so there's like these breadcrumbs of information out there um uh, so I had to, uh, you know, do a lot of experimenting, a lot of tracking down of, of information that was was, you know, very getting very close to being lost to history and uh, uh, being very patient as I then, you know, sort of did one thing at a time. Um, that's really, you know, the art to it. Like, for example, uh, let me give a concrete example. So, OK, you're on the Apple II, you want to print some text on the, 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 the graphic screen that you're going to have, you know, your, your, your tiles and everything else going on. You, 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 you just want to print some text, like the, the character's name. Um, it is not even as simple as, like in BASIC, uh, even in AppleSoft BASIC, you might say something like print, the, the command, like print and in quotation marks, your character's name, whatever it is, uh, Bob Johnson, and, and then it prints text to the screen. Well, you can't use AppleSoft because it's too slow. You got to do it in assembly language to get a uh, an RPG up and running of any size that's graphically based on on the Apple II. So in assembly language, you know, it's like nothing is done for you. You want to put text, print text on the screen. You've you've got to write the routine that is going to like take as an input the ASCII hexadecimal ASCII value of each character and 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 for a, a given uh, hex value for an ASCII character that's input in, like for the letter A. Uh, all right, now you want to print the letter A. You got to write the routine that then um, goes out into uh, video memory and turns on the pixels, uh, which which is all you know, like in binary for what pixels on zeros off, one is on in the position on the screen that you want the A to be printed in. And so you got to have some parameters for like, okay, well, where do you want it that goes into your subroutine? And you've got to use those parameters to adjust the memory address in video memory for where you're turning those pixels on. And the addresses in video memory aren't even in sequential. Uh, it doesn't go, you know, one, two, three, four, five. It goes in like clusters of 
256 bytes and they're mixed up and backwards because that's saved uh, in the number of chips that were put in the computer originally. So that uh, that that challenge got passed on to the programmers to then sort out this non-sequential video memory address scheme. So you got to you got to deal with that stuff. You got to sink your teeth into those problems and 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 uh, and and come up with solutions to them. Um, and ultimately, I was in the process of doing this, you know, doing a fair amount of reinventing of the wheel. You know, the people that made the games in, in the 1980s, uh, you know, certainly had to solve these problems and write, write code to do them. I didn't at, when I started the project, I didn't know any of them. I know some of them now, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, and, 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 and some some of them don't even remember all that much <laughs> uh, necessarily about, you know, things 30 years ago either. Um, so that that is a microcosm into what it's like to create a game engine from scratch on an 8-bit platform like the Apple II. Uh, the other platform, other 8-bit platforms, it's going to be different, but it's going to be similar, you know, <laughs> uh, in, in many ways as well. And so the, it, you have to have a lot of tenacity and patience to do one microscopic thing at a time and be excited the <laughs> first time you see the letter M printed on the screen, which you could have done in five seconds in basic, uh, but but you did it in assembly language and you're going to be thrilled about it. And, and if you can see something like that as a victory and, and find that fun, then maybe you can get through three years of doing one thing at a time and, you know, building on what you did one little piece at a time. Um, it's, it's certainly it's not for everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess that takes me to another question then. Like now that the tools have been built and you have everything that you need, like. How fast is it now to kind of like implement an idea or add something to the game compared to, you know, when you were still making things in terms of the tool side? Much faster. The efficiency gain with the tools is orders of magnitude. Like, for example, uh, a, 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 a tile on the game, which is like 14 pixels by 16. Um, the amount of time that that would take to do the art on... Uh, to do to do the art in the tool and and then see it on screen on um, you know depends on the complexity of the tile but you know design designing the art and putting it on screen can probably be done in like ten minutes now there might be some refining of the art you know to to make it look just right uh, but first iteration maybe ten minutes and and eight minutes of that is actually just you know doing the art you know <laughs> itself. Uh, you know, and, and if we were talking about doing it the old fashioned way where, where you do the art on graph paper, you manually, uh, have to convert the pixel, uh, layout into a series of binary values, flip the binary, uh, values, uh, around, uh, in reverse and then convert it to hexadecimal and then code the hexadecimal in, into your source file. Um, you know, that is, could take hours, Mm. (laughs) Uh, and then and then you do all that. You take a couple hours. You do all that, and oh, I made a mistake. It doesn't look quite like I expected. Uh, where did? Where was the mistake? Was the mistake <laughs> in the layout in the graph paper, or was it with within which of the five mathematical conversions that I described? You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so 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 really, that two hours magnifies by another factor for margin for error. So there's just no comparison. It's orders of magnitude more efficient with the tools. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, you said a few minutes ago that people are asking you to write a book about designing an 8-bit RPG. 
Um, are you considering like doing anything in terms of like releasing like the tools you've developed or having them available for people to work with on their own? That that's another uh, another another thing that people have asked me about, and uh, is another project on sort of the future project list. Um, and my thoughts around that are first of all that at some point. Uh, I, I intend to make the Knox Archaea source code uh, open source. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure when that's going to be. I mean, certainly, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, raise some money, you know, with the initial release of the game and things like that, given the amount of time and, you know, effort that was involved with it and other things that I could have been, been doing. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at some point I want to make it open source, which will be a good learning tool right there. Uh, as far as being able to take the source code and actually do something with it, um, you know, that, 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 that's kind of a whole nother order of magnitude of project. And to get to the point where there's like a RPG maker based on the Noxer chaos engine, um, I think what that would take is somebody partnering with me uh, that was interested in a project like that. And, and, and where they, what, 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 and what they thrived off of and thought was fun uh, was was building tools. Because ultimately, I I'm not a tool guy. Yes, we made some tools. They're they're way efficient compared to not having them. But uh, that's not the kind of programming that's really my strong suit mm-hmm. or what I enjoy doing. Uh, and uh, it, it it would really take somebody where that's like their thing. And and people who love build, designing tools typically don't like writing game engines. So I could totally see uh, uh, some point in time. So, uh, getting together with somebody that enjoyed writing tools uh, and and getting together on a project like that where I kind of explain, you know, here's the inputs into the game engine. Go write some tools that put them there in a user interface that is, you know, friendly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll work with you on, you know, the, the, the troubleshooting and advising and things like that. Um, I'm open to the possibility of a project like that in in, in the future if, uh, a, a, a partner came along that brought those other things to the table. But I think that's what it would take. I, I don't think I'd ever get there myself. Okay. Yeah, and especially with something like uh, Nox Archaeus, with the fact that, that this originally started as being like your dream RPG. It wasn't to create like your dream tool set to make this game. Exactly. That that you, You'd hit the nail right on the head. Mm-hmm. Couldn't have said it better. Yep, and... This has definitely been a fascinating conversation. I will admit, this is a bit over my head in terms of my knowledge base when it comes to game design. But like I said, like my audience does include a lot of programmers, and I'm sure they are loving this. And if we were doing this live, I bet like this part could probably go on for like a few hours of people asking you <laughs> programming-related questions. I guess a few... Sure final wrap-up questions for you and then we'll probably end the cast and like we were just saying like if you're free in the future you know we can always have a follow-up whether it's live or recorded sure uh i i would welcome that it's uh been a lot of fun talking with you here today so i definitely would uh -hmm. uh, welcome coming back and and uh we we probably could do something live in the future too Mm -hmm. if you think that that's something your audience would uh appreciate as far as being able to ask questions Mm -hmm. etc Yep. But here's my last like programming related question for you, Mark, and then we'll do like our wrap ups or wrap okay. up set. So for people listening who may want to either experiment with the Apple II or look up resources, were there any like useful sites, 
books, tutorials, whatever, that you were using while you were kind of like building the tools or even just what you're still using now to build Knox or Chaos? Sure. Um, I can rattle off a number of things here. The uh, a good site is 6502.org. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's just a wealth of information on 6502 assembly language programming, um, and a great book. Uh, the the book that was is really my go-to book for 6502 assembly language is called. Um, Using 6502 assembly language, <laughs> real amazing title there, um, and uh, it's by Randy Hyde. So I would recommend that book. Um, another great uh, book is the Assembly Lines Cookbook that I would highly recommend, and mm-hmm. that's been uh, uh, basically it's a book that was uh, recently published. That's a compilation of uh, the column called Assembly Lines from, I think it was the the old Nibble magazines in the 80s that, you know, would have, like, programming tips and things, and it's been put together in book form. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's on, uh, like, C... Ah, I'm not going to remember the website name, but if you just Google Assembly Lines Cookbook, you'll find the site for that. Um, as far as other tools that are useful getting into uh, the Apple tool, uh, Apple II, um, ADT Pro is uh is a really great tool this that's the one that will uh allow you to transfer a disk image or or, uh uh, uh, yeah transfer a disk image uh from a modern computer onto a floppy disk where you're running it over the serial cable connected to the printer port and all that jazz um you know getting into a little more of the technical side there but if somebody uh wants to get on the apple II and uh basically uh download software online uh Apple II software online and then put it on the real hardware, that, that's the program you're going to want is ADT, ADT Pro. The site that you'll want for finding the disk images of all the, the old Apple II software is called Asimov. It's a big FTP server. Mm-hmm. And uh, another one is ar- uh, archive.org, uh, the Internet Archive uh, nonprofit organization that's uh, the host of like the Wayback Machine and, and some other things related to, uh, to archiving. They also have a tremendous archive of Apple II software. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's, that's probably some good getting started stuff. There's definitely, there's definitely, definitely more beyond that, but, uh, that, that should get anybody started. Great. And I guess uh, one final question, I'm not sure this would be taboo or not to say, but um, as you said, like there are Apple II emulation, and emulation in the game industry is a very hot topic among uh, game preservation and even just major companies. Is it, I guess, quote-unquote legal to use like Apple II emulation like to play these older games? Okay, so uh, to your question about uh, emulators and the legality of emulators and playing the uh, 1980 software in them. So the emulators themselves um, are, depending on, on which one you use, sometimes they will have you download the Apple II oh, ROM file and, and insert it into the directory that uh, the emulator uses. And in that case, the emulator itself is perfectly legal mm-hmm. on, and because you as the user were the one that downloaded the, the, the ROM file that, that would have been on a chip in the original hardware to you know put in there. Uh, some emulators basically just decide eh, it's not a big deal and you know it, it's bundled in there. Um, so it depends on which emulator you get. As to the software itself, um, you can download disk images of 
any software um, that uh, is is almost any software that was, was ever made for the Apple II is available on disk image, at least in terms of games. Uh, there's a lot more missing like the productivity side, but in terms of games, you can download almost anything. Um, copyrights run for 80 years, 100 years, something like that. So definitely, you know, the games are still, uh, you know, technically under copyright. Uh, and uh, I, I basically, the way I think um, most people look at it is, well, you know, under the fair use law, uh, you know, if I owned a copy of this software at one time on physical medium on five and a quarter inch discs, if I download a digital copy uh, and then I'm using that, you know, I'm, I'm just using the same software just in, you know, another form. Uh, so that's that that that's another dimension to the side of it. Uh, you know, do people download disk images and, uh, you know, run them in emulators where they've never purchased the software? Um Probably, <laughs> you know, in the, the 1980s, you know, there was plenty of played, you know, uh, games and, you know, ran software that they had not necessarily purchased. So I don't think anything has changed in, in that realm uh, as a uh, in terms of like, have I uh, uh, there being any lawsuits by uh, the copyright holders of, you know, Apple II software? Uh, you know, basically uh, bringing anybody to court for, you know, playing those disk images or even for hosting, you know, those disk images, you know, where they're downloaded from. I have never heard of any single instance where that has happened. I'd be probably a bit surprised if it was because uh, this stuff is just so old and irrelevant from a commercial perspective at this point that uh, uh, it's just hard to see uh, a, a business rationale for, uh, you know, a company to you know, invest money in doing that. The exceptions are occasionally there's a title where uh, it's it's still actively in use. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that then, uh, you know, the, the company that, that has that copyright is, is a bit more concerned about it. And I've never heard of even a company in that situation uh, pursuing any individual, you know, people, you know, because while they downloaded this and they played it, but what will happen is, uh, in the, in the few, uh, cases where it's still an active title on uh, what'll happen then is they'll send a cease and desist letter to, uh, archive.org, uh, you know, for example, and archive.org will either take it down or not take it down <laughs> depending on, you know, how they judge the merits of the claim. Ar- archive.org is a nonprofit. Uh, that is uh, uh, backed by uh, a, a very wealthy person that made a lot of money in the dot-com era and uh, is, is, has, has enough muscle, so to speak, that uh, uh, he, he, his, his archive.org does not get intimidated by uh, just willy-nilly cease and desist letters getting thrown around. They'll take things down if, if, it's, if it's legitimate and reasonable, but... Um, you know, they, they, they've kind of got the communities back as far as not letting, you know, big corporations kind of trample all over, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the retro scene. And again, like, if we start talking about preservation and such, that is another, like, massive topic when it comes to these kinds of discussions. But 
I think with that, uh, let's begin to wrap things up because, again, there's so much more we can talk about. And I'm sure the audience is either very attentive, they may their eyes may start to glaze over for all <laughs> our discussions here. But one or the other. <laughs> yeah. But it has definitely been a great time talking with today, Mark. And like it's just fascinating about being able to design a game kind of like with modern eyes, but with like that retro look or that retro appeal and that retro methodology to it. Absolutely. Um, it has been an incredible amount of fun and excited to be getting you know, into kind of the final stretch here. We're shooting for a release date uh, next spring, and okay. we're actually uh, uh, now accepting uh, pre-orders. So for anybody that right. uh, missed out on the Kickstarter, if you'd like to take advantage of the pre-order discount, um, just click the pre-order button on uh, noxarchaos.com. And if you'd like more information on Noxarchaos, uh, you can sign up for our mailing list on our website. Uh, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 6502 Workshop, or also on Facebook, where our page name is Knox uh, Arcaeus, no space. Great. And you actually answered my next question about where to find you guys <laughs> and when the game was coming out. Great. You, you did the work for me. <laughs> but Excellent. I guess with that, then, my final question for you this evening is do you have anything you'd like to say to the fans or supporters listening right now? I would just uh, like to thank everybody that uh, is still involved in, in retro uh, computing for, you know, sharing, you know, the passion that, that I do. It would be much less interesting of a thing uh, if, if it was just something I was doing myself. And, and, and I didn't know when I, I kind of got into this project that, uh, you know, there really was much of a retro you know, community out there. And so... Thanks, everyone. <laughs> uh, it, it, I, I love getting uh, interacting with people. I love getting feedback on the game and, you know, as it's been developed and we put out gameplay videos and I'll, I'll be certainly looking forward to when the game is released on, um, you know, just kind of living vicariously through the players as they, you know, post feedback or ask questions or throw up YouTube videos. And, and uh, that wouldn't be possible without the thriving community that is out there. So, so thanks much. Uh, you know, to, to all of those folks for that. And, and anybody listening that uh, the Backdoor Kickstarter are very special to you. Um, you know, you're, you're are, are what is making the, uh, the Box Collector's Edition possible, and uh, uh, that is a definite uh, big part of the, uh, the fun and excitement to me as well. Awesome. And yeah, next time we have a chance to talk, I definitely want to talk more about the physical goods side of things. So that I was looking at the Kickstarter pages uh, before the cast, and I, I just love the idea of all the crazy things you have in that. And just like, again, <laughs> and I, again, like you've mentioned, like several times casual, oh, we're going to ship with floppy disks. And I am very sure that there is probably a small percentage of people listening to this right now who have no idea what a floppy disk is. <laughs> Right, yeah, right, yeah, exactly. It's like, what are you flopping? Mm-hmm. <laughs> flipping and flopping, that's what you're doing. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, well, there's pictures. Go to kickstarter.noxercast.com. You can get some pictures and floppy disks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we're, uh, one, one good reason to, uh, to follow us on Twitter is, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of uh, posts about the progress of game development and uh, the arrival of the feelies on Twitter. We're doing it in backer updates too on Kickstarter, but uh, Twitter is kind of the more informal, mm-hmm. you know, shoot something out. And so just the other day, I posted a picture of, you know, box after box after box of flop, five and a quarter inch <laughs> floppy disks when they arrived. And, 
The week before that is, you know, a whole pile oh, of boxes yeah. of full of maps and boxes of game boxes, you know. So uh, as, as the physical goods are starting to arrive, uh, you know, we're having a lot of fun sending out uh, pictures of that. <laughs> uh, and, and also, of the, uh, like I said, of the game, game development, I'll typically on Saturdays for Screenshot Saturday uh, mm-hmm. on Twitter, I'll, I'll post a screenshot of, you know, whatever I'm working on, like, oh, you know, uh, you know another ruin today. Here's what this looks like so far. <laughs> Great. Oh, and I guess one last question I, I just want to sure. uh, bring up for people listening. How long do you expect, like, how long on average do you think the game will take to finish, like somebody interested in it? Um, well, kind of shooting for a spring release. Uh, is, is, is that what you're asking? Oh, no, I mean, like, so, length of the game. Like, is it going to be, like, a 30-hour, oh, 40-hour, that kind Well, how long will it take them to finish, not how long will it take me to no. finish? <laughs> That's another topic. <laughs> well, it won't, take, it won't take you five years. <laughs> so I, I would estimate that it's be probably a 50-hour game. Okay. Um, and, and uh, you know, that's about what Ultima 5 was. Uh, so that's uh, just to put some context to it. So, you know, it, 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 it's going to be as 8-bit RPGs go. Uh, it's definitely not a short one. You know, it, okay. it's going to be one of those that, you know, keeps you playing for a good long while and immersed in, uh, et cetera. There's a lot of a lot of content. Awesome. All right, so I think with that, we will wrap things up for our cast. Again, Mark, definitely congratulations with the success of the Kickstarter. And I'm sure there are a lot of people, a lot of your fans who are eagerly waiting to play this. Like I said, the CRPGs have always been like kind of like one of my blind spots. But it definitely sounds like something that if you are a fan of this kind of design, that uh, Knox Arcade is going to just like fit that bill perfectly. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it will. And uh, thanks so much for having me on today. No problem. So for everybody listening, we're going to end things here for our cast. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at GWBicer. We have a Discord channel open to everybody. There should be a link to it in the description of this podcast. And be sure to check out the YouTube channel where I have daily videos as well as live interviews with game developers. But if you are a developer working on your own game and would like to come on, please don't hesitate to get in touch and come back for another great discussion on the art and design of games right here on Receptive Podcasts and on Game Wisdom. Until our next discussion, have a great night.